Hello, welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is Great Big History Podcast. In our continued series of History 102, we do the age of political revolution, the United States, France, and Haiti. This is a big episode. We're doing a lot of stuff. So welcome aboard. So the question of the age of political revolution from 1750 to 1850 is who controls the state? Who controls the economy? Traditional elites or new elites or the amorphous idea of, quote, the people? And the bigger question is, does the Enlightenment matter? All of that humanism, all of that freedom, all of that we can change our government, all of that God doesn't make the government, it's made by people. Uh, Rousseau's, the general will, Locke's being awesome in the state of nature. Does any of that matter? Or is it all a bunch of dudes who just had big ideas and wrote books? So we start with the United States, the conservative revolution. Which may strike you as weird because you're like, oh, well, you were going to get so much out of this. We get the Declaration of Independence. And how is that conservative? Well, we'll get there. The question is, of the American Revolution is, does distance matter? And the answer to that is historically, yes. The farther away someone is from what we call the metropole, from the capital, from the center of government, the more independence they have. This was true in the Persian Empire. This was true in Alexander's Empire. This was true in the Roman Empire. This is true in the Ottoman Empire we're talking about now. This is true in the British Empire. The farther away, the more remote you are, the more you're pretty much left to do what you want. And so there's a while being in the empire, there's a lot of being independent as well. And so here's the question for the Americans is, is that true? Despite the revolution in the military revolution, despite the revolution in, in logistics, despite the revolution in navies and ships, like, does distance still matter? And two, what is representation? So the real question is, is it local control of laws? Is it I get to make the laws that affect me? Kind of the Greek polis model. The Athenian model, the Spartan model, the every every locale is independent and they get to make their own rules. Or is it representation if you have a say in but are subject to a distance capital's laws? I.e., do I have to follow laws I don't like that I didn't make? In this question of representation, we do have a bit of Greek versus Roman concepts. The Greek concept that the local, the local polis, the local people make the rules for themselves versus the Roman imperial model where Rome created a unified and uniform set of rules for everyone to follow in a massive space. 
what the American Revolution is not is never a question of taxation. And I know you all get and we get it in elementary school. I got in elementary school. Uh, you know, uh, I'm an Xer. They gave us, you know, communism is Brave New World where they force you into a job. They, I got um, the Lost Cause. I'm a northerner from New York. And my education in the Civil War was states' rights and local control. We're like, it was about freedom, man. Like, what is a New York kid learning southern states' rights in the, in the early 1980s? I mean, come on. And I and I learned the it's it's taxation without representation. No, it was never about taxation. Why? One, taxes are acceptable. Everyone agrees the government can levy taxes. That England had a right to levy taxes, that the king had a right to levy taxes. That wasn't the problem. It was his land. It was his government. He had to fund his armies. Now, you may not like what he wanted to do with his money, but that taxes existed. I mean, Benjamin Franklin. At the same time, people going, it's no taxation without representation. You know, Benjamin Franklin is saying, there's only two things in life, death and taxes. Like, he's telling you, there's always going to be taxes. There are always taxes. It's part of civilization. So America was never a tax-free place because B, the revolution equaled much higher taxes. If you wanted low taxes, you would never have revolted against London. You would never have revolted against the king. The first thing states did was jack up their taxes. Double, triple. Why? Because they had to pay for armies that previously London paid for. Now New York had to pay for a militia. Pennsylvania had to pay for one. Jersey had to pay for one. It had to find uniforms. It had to get the cloth. It had to find the guns. It had to find the metal. It had to get the wood. It had to get all that cost. It had to find people to make this stuff. Most of the people who made that stuff was in London. They weren't here. So you now train people to make that stuff. All that costs money. So if you wanted to pay low taxes, if it was really about no taxation, you would have stayed in the British Empire. So from Hamilton, there's a great little piece. Why should an island, why should a tiny island across the sea regulate the price of tea? And that is the right word. Notice it's not tax. It's regulate. Why should London get to tell us what kind of tea, from where, from which company we have to buy from? Why do they get to regulate it? Not tax it. Of course they get to tax it. That tax is, 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 sales tax is the earliest of all taxes. So I just, I know this is a little aside. I'm taking a few minutes in our lecture, but this is one of the things that like people get, it's, it's, it's like the Hebrews built the pyramids. It's something people get told in elementary school and they carry it through their entire life because no one says, wait, 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 it's not really true. It's just get, and then they perpetuate it. And then the, and the next generation perpetuates it. And something that is 
professionally, historically, just wrong and accepted as wrong. This is not a debate. Gets perpetuated in the popular culture by people who just don't know. They got told in elementary school. I am convinced nobody remembers anything after the sixth grade. I am convinced that I can remember a dozen, uh, two dozen first names and last names of people I went to elementary school. I can't do that in, of high school. That might be 10 people. Maybe a dozen. College is even worse. I can't tell you like anybody. And I lived with people and I can't tell you what their last names were. I'm like, there was this guy, Nate, and this other guy, Ben, who was like 10 feet tall. And there was, there was Bill. Was it Bill or Joe? I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember. And these are people I went drinking with. Spoke philosophy with. And grad school is grad school. Everyone's fled. Hey, if I went to grad school with you and you're listening to this, hi. I hope it helps with your classes. See, I did good. See? You always said I like to talk. Anyway, back to this. It's not about taxes. It's about the representation. Do I have a say in the, lo in the laws I have to follow? Do I have to follow laws I don't like that someone else makes? So who starts the American Revolution? Rich conservatives do. How do I know? Because look at who the founding fathers are. 41 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence owned slaves. Washington owned 50,000 acres. Remember, if you live in a house in the Jersey suburbs, you likely live on like a tenth of an acre. A little square. Right? He owned 50, he owned like West Virginia. He owned 50,000 acres. Jefferson owned 600 plus enslaved people during his lifetime. 600 plus. A small business in America today is defined as 20 employees or less. He had 600. He's a billion dollar company today. Benjamin Franklin and John Hancock were both listed as the richest men in America. Ben Franklin in 1785, John Hancock in 1790. And Rensselaer owned a million acres. This is, this is Hamilton's brother-in-law, the, the guy who will marry Peggy. He owned essentially upstate New York. He owned a million acres in New York State. It's worth somewhere around a hundred billion dollars today. These were not middle class, ordinary guys wanting their freedom. They weren't poor farmers. These were rich men who liked power. That's why it's a conservative revolution. Because they are going to stay in charge. Look at who I just listed. Washington, first president. Jefferson, third president, right? John Hancock, first president of the Continental Congress, right? Ben Franklin is Ben Franklin, right? Go to Philadelphia. He's everywhere. He's on top of a building. I mean, he's Ben Franklin. And he deserves it. He's 
awesome. He is one of the funnest people to, to study in history. He lives a crazy life, and it's interesting. So good for him, but he's not poor. He's not the bumbling, you know, can't wear, get his glasses on straight, oh, you know, kind of dude, right? There's a reason he goes to negotiate in France. There's a reason he's selected to hang out with the French nobility and the French king. What are the effects? Well, first is the alignment has power. The Declaration of Independence is straight lock. It is like mainlining, like injecting lock right into your veins. The United States is a Lockean philosophical country. All men are created equal is lock. All men are, are, are life, liberty, and property. Now, Jefferson will change it to pursuit of happiness. That's nice. It's a nice change. Nice, good edit. Right? You know, updating it. But it has power. Jefferson is using Locke. The Constitution is Montesquieu, not Rousseau. Now, Montesquieu talks about the division of powers. Montesquieu is another French philosopher who looked at the absolutism of the French government and said, no, you got to break that stuff up. Now, he is another noble person. He's another nobleman who wants the nobility to run the show. So he wants the legislature and the judiciary to be nobility, while the executive running the armies is the king. You know, that's the traditional power of the king. You can't really take it away from him. So, but the legislature, the making of the laws, and then the judicial the determining of punishments for breaking the laws should be in the nobility. And the idea for Montesquieu is that would be a check on the executive. There's other philosophers in it too, but Montesquieu is the big kind of, oh, we're going to have limited government. It's Montesquieu. Two, violence. America is all about its violence. Violence equaled backlash, which equaled more violence. Violence like the Boston, you know, like all the protests in Boston, right? The Boston Tea Party, right? That gets us to Boston backlash, right? The British respond. That's more violence. The Boston Massacre. That gets us more violence. And we get imperial violence. And then we get the loss of legitimacy. So every time the British government used violence to stop American violence, you created more revolutionaries. You created more people who said, the British government is tyrannical. And the Brits can say, legitimately say, you, you caused this, you started this, you forced us to shoot you. But it didn't matter. What, what they got wrong was soft power, was the idea of the ideas, was the power of the ideas, that every time the British shot into a crowd, it made the British look bad. It, it was proof of the revolutionaries saying they're tyrannical. Three, plantation slavery had to be defended. The Southern colonies joined the revolution when the British army was willing to make slaves into soldiers. Again, conservative. We have to maintain plantation, chattel, slavery. Four, the people get rights. 
and they get a say because they were needed in the army. This is the Roman model. Those rich dudes, they could not have defeated the British Empire by themselves. They needed farmers. They needed workers. They needed blacksmiths to go into the army or to make things for the army. They needed them to be on their side. And so, like Rome... The elites were willing to give up some say. In Rome, if you take my 101 course, this is the tribunes, the tribunates, the representatives of the people. You give people a say in the government. And then you force them into the army. You suck them up into the army. But like Rome, the conservative elites didn't want the people to run the show. We are not a democracy. And I know this has been a thing. This is a thing in lately on the news and opinion people. And you get, you know, conservatives saying we are a republic, not a democracy, which is technically true. But you also get liberals on my podcast who are going, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. We are a democracy. No, we are not a democracy. You have to understand that we are not a democracy in order to fix the problems of our democracy. We were not set up the conservative elites did not want you people in my community college class to come anywhere near their government that they just created they defeated the roman empire that roman empire british empire they helped defeat the british empire thanks thank you very much you soldiers did a great job now we're going to write a constitution who do you think wrote the constitution Regular folk farmers came in and said, you know, uh, Madison, uh, I have some ideas. No. Rich dudes with a library full of freaking books that they pulled from, and it was Plutarch. And it was Plato. And it was Aristotle. Many times in the Greek and the, and the Latin. It was Marcus Aurelius. They did not want an Athenian democracy in America. They did not win the world so that the people had a say. Look at how our government is formed. Senators are chosen, not elected. That's later. And they're chosen for six years. Six, six years. Representatives in the House of Representatives, those people are elected. And how long are they elected for? For two years. So a senator who is appointed by the state is there three times as long as a representative who has more power the elite senator or the upper middle class local big shot who remember has to spend months getting from Maine to Washington DC has to spend a month at least because of travel unless you take the expense to go by sea Right. So they're already losing. This was also a Roman problem. You're already losing a lot of your two year. By the time you get there and do anything, you've got to go back and get reelected. That is not an, that is not a design like flaw. That is a feature. They wanted constant turmoil in the House of Representatives because then it couldn't organize like the House of Commons does to attack the House of Lords to attack the Senate. It leaves the Senate in charge. You do not pick the president of the United States. 
They didn't even count the popular vote until 1828. Electors choose the president. Who's an elector? Not you. An elector gets chosen by the state. Now, I think they might be chosen by the party, uh, in the state party. But they were then chosen by the state. All right. They don't want people anywhere near this government. The Supreme Court is chosen, and it doesn't have a term limit at all. Now, it does not, it's not as powerful in the beginning as it is now. It doesn't have judicial review. But women and black folks and immigrants and the poor, they couldn't vote at all, even for the representatives. They had no say. This is not a demos. This is not a democracy. It wasn't intended to be. It was a government by, of rich guys for rich guys with a little set aside because you had to have an army. Because you needed to draft people into the physical army to fight Native Americans and if the British ever come back. Remember, in the early days, there's a whiskey rebellion. There's a military mutiny against Washington. Or not against Washington, against Congress. It's Washington who puts, puts it down. Who ends, ends the mutiny. And this guy, I gotta tell you, this guy, if you have any doubt about Washington at all, and what people thought, read about the, the mutiny. Because it's circulating, it's petitions, it's very British. It's very um, Oliver Cromwell. Like, this Congress sucks. This Parliament sucks. We should just take it over. We're the army. Washington, well, we can make Washington king. We can make Washington in charge. He'll lead. And there's a petition going around and people sign it in and, and they're getting into it. And there's all this discussion, a lot of free speech, a lot of pamphleteering. And Washington appears, he calls everyone together and he appears and he kind of, he goes, he wants to, he's going to read to the, to the group. He knows about this, this discussion of mutiny and he basically wants it to end. And so what he does is takes out his reading glasses, which, as far as I know, he didn't wear very often in front of the soldiers. But he takes it off, and he puts them on, like, all gingerly, you know. And he says, excuse me for wearing my spectacles, because I've lost my sight in the service of my country. It's like... And the crowd is just like, oh, Washington, you're so awesome. Oh, we can't revolt against you. And then he goes on to say, basically, Congress sucks, but it's Congress. And, you know, this is not what civilized countries do, because that's civil war, and that's dictatorships, and that's coups, and we shouldn't do that. But do not call us a democracy, man. Because then you're missing all the problems. Like, okay, sure, the U.S. becomes less elite over time. That's true. Senators will become elected. Electors become a position that they have to. Uh, the, the popular vote replaces the independent power of the electors. Women and black folk and even some groups of uh, immigrants get to vote. Right? We do become more democratic. But it's always a fight. It's always a fight. There were people who wanted women to vote in 1790. They had to wait 
1920. Black folk didn't even count as people, actually. In the Constitution, they counted as three-fifths of a person. Not a whole person. And that, that was a fight. That was an innovation. Why? Because before the three-fifths compromise, black folk didn't count as any percentage of people. They counted as zero person. So three-fifths is actually a step towards humanity. It's actually a step of the South being like, okay, they're kind of people. Like, philosophically, that's huge. Because if they're people, then they deserve protections. They deserve rights. They deserve stuff, right? If they're just a machine, if they're a 0% person and just a machine, you could throw them out, kill them, sell them, destroy them. Who cares? But if they're, but if they're a person, even partly a person, then that has to change your mindset. Even a little bit. That was a huge philosophical compromise that doesn't, doesn't really... It gets missed with the part that's like, well, black people didn't count as full people. Yeah, but before that, they didn't count as any person at all. So it's always a fight. Now, minority rule in America is wrong. The, the founding fathers did not want minority rule. That is very true. And that's what a lot of the liberals will say. Well, no, we are. To say we're a republic and a democracy is totally wrong and it's insulting. And like, no, we are a republic. We have limitations on the role people have in government. That's a republic. I vote once a year, maybe twice. I vote for my local taxes and I vote for my local government representation. I don't vote on any laws. I have no say in the government. I have no say in the budgets of the United States, the state of New Jersey, or the, or Candom County. I don't have any say on any of that. And I'm a public employee, and I have a PhD. I'm not, I'm not, I don't smell like pee, right? I'm an upper middle class white dude. If I don't have democratic say in what happens, who does? And so minority rule is wrong, but the founding fathers didn't want populism either. They didn't want the people to have a say. But they didn't want the people to revolt either. So the idea that when Republicans or conservatives today are saying we're a republic, it's, it's a justification for minority rule. And that's wrong. That is totally wrong. A republic does not mean minority rule. A republic simply means that there are intercessions between the people and the government. That is not a democracy. I and mean, democracy is a demos. It is a government by the people. The American Revolution has almost no effect on the world. It's a bunch of crazy yahoos living on the edge of the world in a giant forest. Like, whatever, mate. It don't matter. And that's true. It was a dumping ground. It becomes a dumping ground for, for poor people, for the less desirous. It's like, go away. You know, the, the, English, the English, after trying to genocide the Irish, would just kick them to 
America and say, you go and do whatever there. You know, the second reason it had almost no effect on the world is we kept trading and culturally importing from Britain as if nothing happened. As if nothing happened. And three, republicanism, slavery, and industrialized violence was simply not applicable in a European setting. The Europeans had slavery in their colonies, not necessarily in Europe itself. Republicanism, there's only one, two states that have any kind of Republican form of government. Three, Venice, the Netherlands, and the Swiss cantons. Like, that's what we're talking about. All of those are small. They're not France. They're not Spain. Right? And then the constant individualized violence. The idea that um, the brutality against Native Americans, the brutality against enslaved peoples, the violence of white person against white person on a daily basis has no, does not apply in Europe. There's no applicable. It's still true today. Sweden has five murders a year. With guns. America has what? 10,000? And you go, well, they're, they're different populations. Yeah, but even per capita, American violence is famous. America has always been a violent place. So the revolution that really matters happens in the middle of Europe, in the richest of countries, with the leading culture science monarchy of the day, which is um, France. The French Revolution from 1789 to 1804, and then Napoleon's Napoleonic Empire, 1804 to 1815. So question, do we have to listen to the king if he can't help us? And if the king loses power, who gets it? Is it the nobility, as Montesquieu argued? Is it the middle class, as Locke argued? Or is it, quote, the people, as Rousseau argued? And uh, if you murder all the nobility, then who gets it? It's going to be a question. So what happens? All right. The best way I know how to do this, I've, I have done this several times. I have, this is where the French Revolution is massively complicated. And the best way I can do it is in dialogue. So this is basically the dialogue that happens in France between 1789 and 1791. Peasants. Holy poopies! This is the worst famine in a hundred years. Help us, king! King. Whoa. Uh, I, I don't have any money. Uh, I helped America, and I fought the Brits, and I, I won, but I also have a lot of balances. And, um, hey, uh, 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 nobility? Um, would, do you mind paying some taxes so uh, you could help out our people? Uh, uh, uh. Nobility. Well, if you want to give up some of that absolute power, maybe we can talk about throwing some money in. Oh, uh, well, uh, um, uh, let me think about it. The upper middle classes, your merchants, your professors, your, your educated people making money with their brain. Ah, uh, ah, uh, hey, king. 
uh, uh, we, we, we already pay taxes. We pay a lot of taxes. And uh, how about we get some power uh, like they got in England and Sweden? Uh, they even got a, in Sweden, they even got a whole, like, a chamber of Poland just to themselves. Like, can we have that? King and the nobility. Shut up! S-T-F-U. The adults are talking here. Shut up. Peasants. Uh, ooh, ah, ooh, well, these big noble houses certainly look like they have lots of food in them. No one's helping us, so maybe if we break in and take the food, uh, we won't starve. Oh, 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 heaven the Betsy, heaven the Betsy, it's a riot. Oh, the people are out there, it's a riot, it's disorder. Oh, they're in the streets. Oh, call out the army, shoot these people, shoot these people, it's disorder. The upper middle classes to the peasants. Huh. Hey, who, who, did you see that? The king and the nobility want to kill you. They want to kill you, peasants. They, hey, 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 help us, help us, and help you. We'll help you, and you help us, and we'll help you, and then we all don't end up dead. And what does this equal? A liberal revolution. Limits the power of the king. Gets rid of the nobility. All men are equal before the law. Women gain rights, at least temporarily. Traditional privilege no longer matters. Lafayette, who was a general in America, gives up his inheritance. Other nobility does it too. They're like, we are citizens. I am no better than you. That's Lafayette. He's a marquis. His name is Marquis de Lafayette. The peasants will get land. We'll redistribute the land. Like, I own 10,000 acres. We're going to break it up into 20-acre plots and give it to other people. The The upper middle classes are going to get to run the legislative branch like they do in England. France will be a limited monarchy republic. And it's not too bad. It's pretty bloodless. It's a lot of disorder and turmoil and a lot of, you know, political fighting. But going into 1790 into 1791, okay, the king is still on the throne. The nobility still have their money, but, you know, they're going to lose some of their property because they're going to give it to the peasants. Um... The upper middle classes have won. The peasants are going to get relief. Like, okay. In a Lockean sense, we are doing fairly well here. We add a little Montesquieu. Life is good. And what happened is the conservatives said, F that. And not only conservatives in France, conservatives in Europe. Austria and Prussia which is which was the leading state in Germany, so that's why I have Germany in quotes, invade France to stop the revolution. They don't want the revolution, the French Revolution, which is arming peasants and in, empowering the upper middle classes to come to them. They don't want it to affect Austria and Germany because that would destroy the Austrian and Prussian kings who are also absolute monarchs. And so what happens is in order to save the revolution from conservatism, the French Revolution gets super liberal. Super liberal. 
It goes farther to the left. The French Revolution, when it starts, is left. Right? We're changing the government. So it's liberal. But the French Revolution of 1791 to 1795 is super liberal. We're going to save the revolution. And so how are we going to do it? We're going to murder the people who are against the revolution. And this is called the terror. There's two, two parts of this. The first is the terror. We're going to murder the people who are counter-revolutionaries, people who do not support the revolution. Now, here's the problem. Who is a counter-revolutionary? All right, the king obviously is a counter-revolutionary. Even if he doesn't talk about being a counter-revolutionary, even if he's okay giving up some power, he obviously is a counter-revolutionary because he's the biggest loser. What about the nobility? Well, Lafayette talks a big game, and we like him. Well, what about other people? A lot of these rich folks say they're okay with the revolution. They say they're okay with giving up land to the peasants. Are they really, or are they going to help the, the Austrian and the German armies? Are they related to the German and Austrian armies? Most of them are. In fact, the king is. His wife is Marie Antoinette. So now you have to find out who really supports the revolution. And what do you need? You need spies. You need information networks. You need the guillotine. You need trials. You need torture. And the guillotine allows for industrialized murder. See, the problem with cutting off the heads of people, which is the original way they were doing it, to kill, you know, to kill noblemen, you cut the head off. It's slow. And the axe gets dull. The guillotine, on the other hand, isn't chopping. It's slicing. The edge, like a deli slicer, zoom, 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 stays a lot sharper, longer, because it doesn't chop. It slices. And so less of the blade is cutting through the body at any one point. That allows the industrialization of murder. Now, the guillotine will get us to the gas chambers of the Holocaust. The gas chambers of the Holocaust, or maybe the nuclear bomb, is the height of industrialized murder, of using machines to murder lots of people quicker. Starts with the guillotine. It will go through the Zyklon B gas chambers. And if you wish to include nuclear bombs, the hydrogen bomb, which will kill a million people, 10 million people in an instant, boom, if it goes off in New York, sure. That's industrial. That's technological. And that murders a lot of people in an instant. So you get the terror. And it was called the terror at the time. The second part is you have to fight those armies, those conservative armies from Germany and Austria. And that's the levee in mass. The levee in mass is the total mobilization of the country at war. This is completely new. This is a military revolution part two, because now we're going to mobilize the country. All men are going to be in the army or work to produce for the army. Some 85% of French income was poured into war by 1795. You get nationalism. To save the revolution is to save France. To save France is to save the revolution. And these foreigners 
are trying to take your rights away. So the most important thing is not that you're a peasant. It's not that you're a nobleman. It's that you are French. We get the national anthem, La Marseillaise. Let's go through it. Arise, children of the fatherland. Our glory, our day of glory has arrived. This sounds better, I will tell you, in French. Against us, the bloody flag of tyranny is raised. The bloody flag is raised. Do you hear in the countryside the roar of those ferocious soldiers? They're coming right into your arms to cut the throats of your sons, your comrades. To arms, citizens! Form your battalions! Let's march! Let's march! That their impure blood should water our fields. That is a song about fighting to kick the Austrians and the Prussians off your territory. It is a battle to, it is a song to to rouse people to fight for France, the fatherland. And it sounds an awful like, like a song that you may also know from a certain musical. Do you hear the people sing, singing a song of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again when the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums there is a life about to start when tomorrow comes will you join in our crusade notice how militarized this is who will be strong and stand with me beyond the barricade is there a world you long to see then join in the fight that will give you the right to be free do you hear the people sing, singing the song of angry men? Is the music of a people who will not be slaves again? It's a song. It's rousing. And if you've ever seen Les Mis, it is a... It is, I don't know what to tell you if you haven't seen Les Mis. It is amazing, the scene. The flag, the French flag, the flag of revolution is flying. And it's, it's about the glory of being French. Fight for your right to be free. What helps you be free? What saves you from slavery? The revolution. And the Austrians and the Prussians and the nobility and the king all want you to go back to where you were. So what do we have to do? We have to defeat Austria. We have to defeat Prussia. We have to murder those nobility who are selling us out. And then we have to go after the king who they want to put back on the throne. In all of his glory and all of his power. We gotta get rid of him. We gotta get rid of his wife. We gotta get rid of his son. And then we get our republic. Well, you can imagine that's chaos, right? We got murder and trauma, and the entire society is the revolution is eating itself as it gets more and more liberal. Like we just had a we had an election, right? We are where where we had Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and what were they all arguing about? Well, other than Bernie Sand, uh, other than Bernie Sanders, other than Joe Biden, they were all talking about how liberal they were, right? And even Bernie Sanders and then Bernie Sanders did it again. Joe Biden moved to the left as time went on. Now imagine the French Revolution and the Terror. What would Bernie Sanders do to people to judge? He would accuse him of selling out the revolution and then have a trial, find him guilty, send him to the guillotine to get rid of him. 
Like, that's how the revolution got more liberal. You eliminated people who went, wait, 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 maybe we shouldn't do that. And you said, you're against the revolution. Whether it was a good idea or not. So the revolution began to eat itself. But at the same time, you need a massive army to save France. What will happen is Napoleon and the conservatives will end the chaos of the terror. Why? Because war needed stability back home. Now look at Napoleon. Napoleon is our perfect example of the French Revolution. When it starts, if you're looking at our video on the left, he is a revolutionary, dashing, revolutionary figure, right? And with his victories, he becomes the dashing commander in the middle, the famous David painting of him crossing the Alps like, like Hannibal. He's a new Hannibal. He's got the red of revolution. He's got the red cloak. He's cloaked in it. It is the revolution. The red of revolution. Notice China's um, flag is red. Notice the Soviet Union's flag is red. Why? Because in the 19th century, liberalism took on red as the flag of revolution. So Napoleon's cloaked in it. And then he becomes emperor. On the right, David's painting of him as emperor. Now that should, he went from a guy who was overthrowing, okay, overthrowing a king in order to get a republic to becoming emperor. Now, you may not know much about royal titles, but emperor is bigger than king. Emperor is essentially king of kings. Now, technically, it goes back to the Roman imperator, which means general. So he's technically right. But Diocletian changed all of that. And so it, the emperor really means a king of kings. You know, the sole authority on earth. So to save the revolution, Napoleon and, the arm, and his army and his generals will fight wars to spread the revolution in Europe. He will need a massive army. To pay for that massive army, he needs to tax the rest of Europe, the places he conquers. So he has to occupy the rest of Europe. Notice the Nazis, when we get to part two, will do much the same thing. Liberal peoples, hey, we don't want an occupation. Thanks. We're fine. And conservatives, we don't like these French revolutionary ideas. Like getting rid of the days of the week, getting rid of the months. Like, you, this is crazy. Thermidor is a crazy idea. So you get liberal and conservative backlash. So by 1805, France is at war with everyone. And it's at war with all of Europe. It's at war with liberals and conservatives. Because in order to pay for the war, it has to trample on the, the things the liberals like. This is Beethoven. Beethoven wrote the, his third symphony for Napoleon, for the emperor. And then he crosses it out. And there's a big gash in the page where he hates Napoleon. Why? And he calls it now the Eroica. Why? Because he wasn't bringing the revolution. He was bringing French military tyranny. They promised the revolution. They promised freedom. And what did they bring? Fascism. Early fascism, really. They brought occupation, military occupation of a French country. So, so 
even Beethoven, who was a revolutionary, rejects Napoleon. France is at war with everybody. And if we have a perfect meme of where did it start, Napoleon ends with, how is it going? Napoleon will lose. He will go into exile twice. Because one time he comes back from exile. He's like, Europe, I'm sorry we broke up. It wasn't me. It was definitely you. But I've come back. You need me. And Europe went, no, we don't really need you. And that is the Battle of Waterloo, where Wellington, and backed up by a Prussian army, defeats Napoleon. What is the point of this? What is the point of Napoleon? The point is, is that no one country will be allowed to conquer or unite Europe. The idea of that Roman Empire is gone. Notice, we're going to do this again in 100 years when we fight the Germans twice. Quote, two, the people are dangerous. There's a, there's a, there's a line in the Hamilton musical where um, Jefferson is talking to Washington and Washington goes, who's leading, the, who's leading France? And Jefferson goes, the people are. And he goes, the people are rioting. You know, we'll we'll make a deal with France when they figure out who can lead them. And in fact, Hamilton then gets in there and makes a joke about, oh, uh, yeah, we made an alliance with the king of France, who's now dead. They cut his head off. Like, are those people we really want to be allied to? And so the people are dangerous. The French Revolution is what convinces American conservatives they were right all along. They were right to be pro-British. They were right to have a conservative revolution where the people aren't given too many rights and the people aren't given too much power. Like the French Revolution is liberal. The American Revolution is not. So the people are dangerous. You can either give them stuff, liberalism, or shut them up, conservatism. We will see liberalism in England, give them the right to vote, lower their taxes, but in Eastern Europe, in Prussia, Russia, and in Austria, we will see conservatism. You shoot them. You shut them up. And three, nationalism. The most motivating military power since the Roman age is nationalism. France will give you rights. And to save your rights, you must save France. Because if France loses, you will lose your rights. But what is the nation? Is it the language? Is it the ethnic group? Is it the racial group? Is it the class? Is it the land? Who gets to be French or German or English? And is this identity flexible? This is a question we're dealing with now. Now, America is a bit different from Europe as it's not based on one ethnic group. But we are in the midst of a huge debate over who gets to be an American. Do immigrants... How long do you have to be in this country before you're considered an American? If your parents are immigrants and you're born here, are you an American and your parents are not an American? But what about black people who have been here for 400 rough years? Do they get the same rights? Are they as American as you are? As that newly born baby is? Like, these are not easy questions. These are questions we are in the midst of a debate about. And conservatives want to limit 
that franchise and always have. That's what conservative is about. I am special because I have a I have rights that not a lot of people have. That makes me special. This is how kind of Athenian democracy worked, right? You it was very hard to be an Athenian and get the full rights and then serve in the democracy. It was limited. Or is it the Roman model? We'll make you all Americans. We'll spread the franchise. We want you all to serve the state. We want you all to pay the taxes. We want you all to have success because your success is our success. That's the Roman model. We are at the at a debate and we have always been at a debate between our Greek and our Roman foundings. All right. Let's turn to Haiti. The Haitian Revolution goes from 1791 to 1804. And it has a simple premise. It has a simple question. Will the Enlightenment apply to black people? Can black people be European? Can they be civilized? And I don't mean it, can they be civilized? Can they be considered to be civilized? Will other Europeans accept black people as equals? That is what the Haitian Revolution is going to decide. Now, Haiti is a wealthy colony, which enriched its owners of the land and France. It produced 60% of the world's coffee, 40% of the French sugar. It perhaps pr produced 30% of France's profits. Versailles built partially with this money. And the population of Haiti was 90% enslaved people and only 5% white. Those other 5% is, is a mulatto. Mixed race. Okay, so that's our situation. We have a wealthy trade colony exporting 60% of the world's coffee, 40% of French sugar making millions of francs per year for the ownership of the, for, by the owners of the slaves and the French government. And then this, the French Revolution happens in 1789. The ideas of equality, liberty, and fraternity, all men are created equal. Well, to the slaves, that sounds great. And so you get slave rebellions wanting what the French Revolution promises, and they get victory. And in the earliest part of the revolution, when it's the most, when it's liberal, the French government actually gave Haiti its independence and said, yes, congratulations, we will outlaw slavery. And then Austria and Prussia invaded and France needed money. And they looked at Haiti and said, those 30% of our profits, we need that back. So the French reinvade. Napoleon will send an army even later. And that will be a failure. Both invasions will be a failure. This first invasion ends with a period of negotiation, which allows for freedom of trade. It's freedom for trade. Excuse me. The enslaved peoples get their freedom, but you have to trade with France. Hey, we were trading with France anyway. Sounds like a good deal. So Haiti declares its independence, outlaws slavery, becomes the second independent state in the Americas after the United States, and the first black republic anywhere. Now, African kingdoms do exist, but Europeans did not count them as peers, as equals. They're African kingdoms. They're run by a king, and they're mostly part of the Islamic world. So there's a good chance Europeans didn't even know they were there. 
So this is a black Christian republic becoming part of the community of nations. That sounds great. Sounds awesome. Certainly isn't going to end badly, right? Everyone's going to agree that this this tiny half of an island that produces so much wealth is definitely entitled to its independence and to make a percentage of its production back, right? In profits, certainly, right? Uh, kind of. It worked. The Haitian Revolution wins. Enlightenment applies to black folk. All people are created equal. Black lives do matter. And that's important because as slaves, their lives did not matter. As enslaved persons, their lives weren't. They were machines. And so now is a declaration, black lives do matter. Poor people, even more than the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution tells you poor people can run their own government. The U.S. had their elites. The French had their middle classes. In Haiti, you're talking about the poor people. You're talking about people. Because the white people are either going to flee, mostly to the U, mostly to South Carolina, actually, or back to France. They're not going to be helping to run the new black Haiti. And there's the third part, and this is going to be very important to Marx. This is going to be very important to communism later on. In socialism today, a land's wealth should go to its own people not exported to foreign minorities it is a rejection of imperialism economics. It also doesn't last. Now, we will come back to that with communism and Marx. We will come back to that with Alaska, of all places. Conservative Republican Alaska actually shares the oil revenue with all of its citizens. The idea being, if, if it's Alaskan oil, Alaskan citizens should get a percentage of it. That's Sarah Palin's socialism. The socialism Sarah Palin railed against in 2008 was socialism she was actually participating in. We'll see this in um, decolonization. That a land's wealth should go to its own people. It's a rejection of the British and French empires, the Spanish empire, but it also doesn't last. White countries, the problem is, is white countries couldn't abide a rich, independent black island. They just couldn't. It was invaded by Britain, by Spain, and by France twice. But it won all of those, all of those battles. It won. By 1804, it's independent. General de Salinay orders the massacre of, white, of the white population as Retribution for all these invasions. The idea being, it's kind of the French idea or the crusader idea, is the idea that as long as white people are there, as long as the king is alive, right, in France, there will always be something for the British, the French, or the, the British, the French, or the Spanish to try to put back in charge. Like you have to get rid of the old elite to create a new elite. You have to rip the weeds up by their roots. If you're a gardener, it makes sense. That's exactly what you have to do. Because if you leave the weeds, they will grow back. And so white folk who won't renounce their privilege, or and they can't be black, 
begin to get massacred. This is proof to the Europeans that black folk can't be free, that they're too violent. It sees, it says, it's used as proof. Something that is done throughout history, all over the place, becomes proof that racism is right in the Anglo-European eyes. See, these people are barbarians. They did it themselves. The French did it to their own king. The British did it to their own king. So it's not fair, but racism is never fair. But it's seen not through a political lens, it's seen through this racial lens that black folk can't be free. And so white countries won't acknowledge independent Haiti. That's Thomas Jefferson. The United States had a trade embargo. It would not trade with Haiti. No trade for an export country, a country where 100% of its income was coming from exports. That leads to poverty and the collapse of the economy. Henri Christophe reintroduced serfdom and slavery in order to get any trade with the Anglos to reopen British trade. He had to reintroduce serfdom and to a something of a degree of slavery. If they didn't, I'm not a French, I'm not a French Haitian historian. If they don't call it slavery, it looks a lot like it. It also shows that there's a division between black, quote unquote, and mulatto slash colored populations, mixed race. That the lighter skinned people ended up in charge, that the lighter skinned Haitians ended up getting better jobs, being more in charge. That even in Haiti, racism, colorism continues. And then in the 1820s, I think, France actually forced Haiti to pay reparations. Reparations to France for the money it lost, for the stolen land, quote unquote. Now remember, the land was owned by the Carib people. White people came in, murdered the Carib people, then kidnapped, bought enslaved peoples from Africa, shipped them over unwillingly to the new world and then forced them to labor for about 300 years. And then had the audacity to say, you owe us for the money we, for this land you stole. And so again, Haiti is forced into poverty. So what are our results? Our results are one. Racism is more powerful than the Enlightenment. It just is. Black people can't be people. Because if they could be, it would prove white economics to be wrong. It would prove the entire racial system Europeans are constructing to be wrong. So the Enlightenment, which talks about all men are created equal, and it's all, has an asterisk on it. And that all and that people, those asterisks, those little footnotes, are the exceptions. And there's a lot of exceptions. The alignment applies to rich white men. It might kind of apply to working class white men of European descent, Christian white men. It's not clear if Jews get included. Muslims certainly don't get included. Even though both are white.
But racism is more powerful than the land. And when given the chance to live all men are created equal, European descended peoples, white people decided not to. Racism was more powerful than the Enlightenment. Two, racism is stronger than economics. White countries were willing to be poorer than to help a black nation to be independent. Remember, Haiti produced 60% of the world's coffee. Did you think people, white people just stopped drinking coffee? No, they had to find an alternative. And whatever that alternative is, it was harder to get and it was going to be more expensive. How do I know it's harder to get and more expensive? Because if it was easier to get and less expensive, Haiti isn't producing 60% of the world's coffee. That means you are willing to pay high prices, to redirect investments, to start over and find new places to grow your coffee rather than trade with black people. This is seen in an in a American context in a book, in a recent book called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee, who is a lawyer by trade, I believe. And she talks about the 1970s and how suburban towns um, stopped having drain their pools, that, that segregation meant black people could go to the same pools as white people. And so rather than let black people share swimming in the same pools as white people, the towns simply drained their pools. And that happened in the South and in the North. And then white people started building pools in their backyards, private pools, so they didn't have to share. And the argument is, White people lost a lot. Poor white folk can't afford to put a pool in their backyard. Right? And so they lost. Racism costs us. And racism certainly cost Britain, the United States, and France. Rather than trade with Haiti, which would have been economically more important, which would have been economically smarter. They instead enforced racism and punished their own people. Three, for countries to be independent, they need other countries to accept them. They need education. They need infrastructure. They need an educated class for government. They need an economic infrastructure for self-development, not just for export. Haiti's problem in 1805 was its entire economy was based upon selling stuff to France, sending stuff to France. It didn't have an economy to sell internally, to manufacture goods. It didn't have banking. It didn't have an investment system, a stock market. It didn't have any of the seeds it needed to be independent. And you need cultural allies. You need other countries. A country is a country because other countries say it's a country. You need cultural allies to work with and to create transnational ties, diplomacy and trade and alliances and mutual assistance. And that, number three, is super important for part three of our class when we do decolonization. When the European empires collapse after World War II, we're going to find that in places that the Europeans said, oh, we're going to build ec in educational infrastructure, they don't. We're going to build economic infrastructure, they don't. We're going to help form cultural allies with other 
other groups or in groups, you know, that are separated by our white people, European borders. They don't. And so a lot of these countries collapse because they don't have any infrastructure to hold out. They don't have any foundation to hold up a country on top of. And you may go, and you might, and this is a little racist for you to say, but you go, well, what about the United States? It didn't have the educational infrastructure. True. It didn't have the inf economic infrastructure. True. It did have the cultural allies. It had both France and then later Britain. So there is that, right? But it also had 3,000 miles to the next ocean. It had the entire forests of the East to cut down the plains of the Midwest to fertilize. Haiti it is tiny. Haiti is one half of a small island. The United States is a continent. It had the room to build those infrastructures. And it took 100 years. Remember, the United States is not powerful, despite the Civil War, really until... The 1900s. It loses in Canada twice. I mean, the Canadians defeated us twice. I mean, come on. You're going to tell me about how powerful America is? That's, that's seeing how powerful America is now. But that's because of population increase. That's because of immigration, right? That's because it had the space and this endless supply. It was a continental. It was a continental. It wasn't a country. It was a continent. So it had the space. Russia's the same way. Australia's a third. Right? They have the space and the time. So what are our results in the age of political revolution? The first is that people matter and can act to make their lives better. Second, is enlightenment ideas have power? Freedom, democracy, these matter to people. Third, conservative violence to stop change is met with progressive violence. So conservatives attack France to stop the revolution. The French build the levy en masse to take the war back to Austria. And the American Revolution killed 2% of the population in, the United, in what became the United States. So we're talking huge death. Liberal demands. So we have conservative violence to stop the change, but we also have liberal demands. And maybe this should have gone as 3.1. Liberal demands will create a conservative backlash. Conservatives will reject any kind of change. And liberals will keep demanding change until it resorts to violence. And then remember, you get liberal violence, which begets conservative violence, which begets more liberal violence. So you get the French Revolution equals crisis, which equals a revolution, which equals change, which equals a conservative invasion, which equals war. It just kept building their liberal demands. It could have all stopped in 1791. The French Revolution did not have to continue after 1791. It could have been a glorious revolution of 1688. In England, it did not, that, that gave us luck. It did not have to be the guillotine. 
and Napoleon. Four, the alignment doesn't apply to everyone. Racism, sexism are still too powerful. Women of all races, black folk in particular, immigrants, workers, the poor, poor white folk, Jews, they are not included in the all men part of all men are created equal. But the revolutions give the language to demand equality for the powerless. It is the enlightenment ideas that civil rights, that gender rights, that gay rights, that immigration rights, that worker rights will keep coming back to that all men part, that philosophical part that humans are worth dignity, that humans should have a say, that we are citizens, that there is a brotherhood of man. And that includes all humans. That includes everyone made by God. That no one is fundamentally better than anyone else. No one's say should be fundamentally better. That is what we're talking about. That language we will see over and over and over again. The brilliance of Martin Luther King Jr. is the ability to combine Jesus and Locke. The two, two major parts of the American cultural foundation, Christianity, Judeo-Christian philosophy, and Enlightenment philosophy, and say, you believe in this, right? You believe in Jesus? Yes. And you believe in Locke? Yes. He just wanted to apply to us. I don't, want, I don't want you to apply to you. I want to be a racist. I want to all own your labor and make lots of money off of it and treat you badly and not have you in my pool because I think it's creepy. Yeah, but you believe in Jesus. Yes, I know I believe in Jesus. And you believe in Locke because you're living in the United States. Yes, I, I know. I know. I like voting. I like yelling at my representatives. I send them letters. Don't take away my guns. I'll kill you. Which, uh, you know. Hmm. So, that's the brilliance of Martin Luther King Jr. Combining these pieces of American language to demand equality for the powerless. And that's where we'll end. It's a long episode, but it fits in our 75-minute class time period. Boom. Thank you. Be safe. Take care. Hope you learned a lot. <sighs> Good luck to you out there.